0: Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you. Or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind. And I hope you'll stick around. In the Gospel, according to John, chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, a couple simple sentences it reads, Carrying the cross by himself, he, that is Jesus, went to the place called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. There they, speaking of the Roman soldiers and more generally, the religious, civil and political authorities, they crucified him, nailing him to a cross. And that is all the description we have of what happened that day. These two sentences constitute what might be the greatest understatement in the New Testament and the very heart of the Gospel. Crosses were common in the first century and Romans executed men and women on them every single day. What makes the cross uncommon, what makes the cross extraordinary is that Jesus died on one. The significance of his one, this one crucifixion among so many has been and remains seismic in its impact. It is bursting with meaning for you and for me and for the world. And last week I invited you to return to the cross, pencil in hand, to see if we could together fill in some of the blanks about what we see on that hillside. The questions that we we began to ask last week, and I'll repeat some of these questions today. What was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, doing on that cross all those centuries ago? How did he end up there? Why was he there? What was he hoping to accomplish? How, after some 2,000 years, does the cross make any difference for those of us living today? What does the cross say about our understanding of God? Our understanding of our own selves? and our relationship with God and our relationship with others. These are not easy questions. But for us, for we who profess faith in Jesus, they are necessary. And it's especially important for those of us who have been working at this puzzle most of our lives to revisit our previous answers. To see if they still fit. To see if our lives, our experiences, and our understandings of the cross should remain or need revision. And I use the example of a crossword puzzle. And I ask you, do we leave these understandings in ink? Or more likely, do we take to the eraser and begin to pencil in different answers to the questions? So keep that pencil in your hand as we soon begin to move through the season of Lent and right up to Easter. I want you to take on this original crossword puzzle. With all of its subtle hints and confounding clues. And I desperately want you to see that this puzzle, the cross, remarkably spells out and reveals the love of God. And that's where we began last week. In first John chapter four, whatever was going on at the cross of Jesus, it was a sacrifice to take away our sins. That is the language of First John. And whatever this sacrifice is or was, whatever it means, it is rooted in and motivated by the love of God. And that is my main premise, and I will repeat myself over and over on these weeks to come, that Jesus did not come to save us from God. Jesus came to show us who God is, and God by nature is love. And this change of perspective will make all the difference. And if you only get this one hint, if you only get this one word, then spell it out across and down and diagonally. Fill every space on the board you can with it. The cross reveals the love of God. Get this wrong and everything else will be wrong. What you start with is where you end up. And we begin and we start with the love of God. And that said, with love as this hub to which Everything is attached. We turned today to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you've heard the reading. Well, I have another clue for you solving a seven-letter word. Clue. Love and blank are the best sweeteners. Love and blank. You cannot buy a vowel. I am not Vanna White. She's got to be 200 years old. I've been watching her my whole life. She never changes. That's not fair. Seven letter word. Love and scandal are the best sweeteners. That is an old English proverb coined by Henry Fielding. Love and scandal are the best sweeteners. Love and scandal go together like few other things. We read about it. We gossip about it. These fuel the greatest blockbusters and the raunchiest romance novels. They drive ratings and clicks and advertising. Together, they are irresistible. Passion and stigma, longing and outrage, affection and shame, love and scandal. And that's a pretty good description, a sturdy handle, believe it or not, on the big suitcase that is the cross of Jesus. It is both love and it is scandal. The message translation, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase that I am so grateful for, says in 1 Corinthians 1, and is reading that the cross is sheer silliness. He calls it absurdity. He describes Jesus' act of crucifixion as weakness. And those with any rationality about them with any sense whatsoever would look at the cross and come to that conclusion. In most English translations, Paul's words are usually translated here as foolishness. The cross is foolish. Literally in the Greek, moros, moron. The cross is stupidity. We would literally translate it. But there is a phrase preserved By the oldest translations in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified and it is a stumbling block. What is a stumbling block? Well, it's something that gets in your way, right? It's something that trips you up. It's something that blocks your path. It can operate as a philosophical or a religious or a cultural roadblock. It's something you can't get over. It's something that prevents you from moving along on whatever path it is that you are on. Any guesses on what the Greek word, the original one used here in 1 Corinthians, is for stumbling block? Escandalon, where we get our English word. Scandal. The cross is a scandal. That's how Paul describes it. The crucifixion for many, for many who come to examine it, is too scandalous, it's too outrageous to accept, they stumble over it, it trips them up, it's a roadblock, it's a wall that blocks their path, and they cannot continue to pursue it. It is stigma, it is silly, it is absurd, it is shameful, it is a non-starter, a dead man on a tree, a gruesome, hideous gratuitous, violent act of execution centuries ago, and I'm supposed to believe that that has something to do with me today? Get out of here. Thought exercise. Will you play along? What if you heard about a group of people who were part of a new spiritual movement? We might even call it a religion, but it's not there yet. It's a new spiritual movement. Men, women, families of all color, ethnicity, nationality, they're all joining in the ranks. It's largely underground, it's a bit secretive, and not everyone trusts them, they might be up to something. But but the people of this community that you have met, you have found them to be kind, and compassionate, and accepting, and forgiving. They live the kind of life that makes you want to know more. They live the kind of life that you yourself would like to get in on. There's just something about them that is real. The only thing that weirds you out is that their primary symbol as a people is an electric chair. Because their leader was imprisoned by the government, found guilty of sedition and executed. And since His death, this little group of strange people have adopted the electric chair as their symbol. They have a big electric chair in the room where they meet. An actual one. They carry it sometimes up and down the aisle. They sing songs about the electric chair. They pray about the electric chair. They preach about the electric chair. They hold electric chair icons close to their hearts and some tattoo them on their bodies. They often speak of going to the electric chair themselves as a sign of commitment to their leader. And every year on the anniversary of their leader's death, they reenact in drama and pictures and stories the execution of their leader in that electric chair. They take something that is a disgusting instrument of death and they transform it into a symbol of their existence and hope. Would you stumble over a group such as that? Were the first Christians doing anything less than that? Is the preaching of the cross any less foolish, any less dramatic? What if I substituted a hangman's noose or a gas chamber or the needle of lethal injection or a lynching tree in the place of the electric chair or the cross? Are you beginning to pick up what I'm saying? The cross that we have made so beautiful was an instrument of torturous death. And those in the first century who saw the cross were not inspired. They were horrified when they saw it. What if I go further and tell it like this? In early 2007, combat elements of the U.S. Marine Division are conducting routine patrols in the Al-Anbar province of southwestern Iraq. There's a brief firefight in one of the villages, and in the aftermath, the Marines enter the village to sort it out. They round up all the men and begin interrogating them. The religious clerics in town point to one particular young man, a handyman known as Rahim as the source of all the trouble. The marines begin to question him. Rahim says nothing. They look for the followers of this Rahim. They cannot be found anywhere. It's concluded that he is no threat whatsoever. But the clerics and the local mayor of the village are adamant. He's a troublemaker. He's a terrorist. Take him away. And the commanding officer does not want to disturb the peace, the very tenuous peace that he has in that village, so he relents and Rahim is put on a flight out of the country. He's transported to Eastern Europe, placed into the hands of CIA operatives who interrogate him in a secret prison. They humiliate him, they abuse him. When they finish, Rahim is transferred to Guantanamo Bay. He stands before a military tribunal where he is charged as an enemy combatant, terroristic threat-making, sedition against the Iraqi government and the United States and other crimes. He never defends himself. And the witnesses that are called to his defense never show up and vouch for him. No one stands to defend him. He is sentenced to death by firing squad and shot at sundown that very night. After his death... His body is loaded in a pine box, put on a military plane, escorted back for burial in Iraq. But on the flight home, the guards hear a rumble in the back of the plane. They go to check it out and find the casket empty. His body is gone. Only the clothes remain in which he was buried. Fearing a backlash, the entire incident is buried by the Pentagon. But Rahim's followers learn of this. They see the empty casket for themselves. And some have encounters with a very alive and resurrected Rahim. Now, what if I told you that Rahim's death and subsequent coming back to life could save our country, could save our world, could somehow save your very soul? Would you believe it? Could you for a minute get your mind around the fact that a military and political prisoner taken in the land of our enemies and executed by the world's superpower is the hope of the world? Or would we find a story to be so far out of bounds, this story, to be so far out of bounds that the only conclusion we can come to is scandalon, foolishness, stupidity, Scandal. But the story I just told you is exactly what the gospel would have sounded like in the first century. That's the story they told, was it not? For when first Christians began telling the good news of Jesus, it was this outrageous a carpenter turned itinerant rabbi swiped by the local religious and political forces handed over to the occupying superpower the Roman Empire wrongly condemned executed in the most painful and degrading form of torturous death ever created and that death somehow some way we Christians say is the very salvation of the world how can this be It is love And it is scandal. And for those who reject it, it is foolishness. For those who receive it, it is the power of God unto salvation. If Jesus is only a man dying on a cross, it's not worth much. It means close to nothing. He's just another innocent victim crushed beneath the injustice of empire and totalitarianism. History is filled with those kind of deaths. But if God was in this Jesus, as the Gospel proclaims, then everything has changed. It means that a humiliating symbol of death has been transformed into the very pathway of knowing God. It means the idea of a faraway, apathetic God is a lie. For God has entered a human being and entered the world. It means that Jesus hanging on that tree was not cursed and forsaken by God, but used by God to save the world. Could one man's life two millennia ago really make a difference for the whole world? It could if God vindicated that man by raising him from the dead. It could if God was uniquely present in that event. It could if God was in that man reconciling and redeeming the world through love and scandal. Almost 20 years ago now, Joan Osborne had a one-hit wonder where she asked a lot of good questions. If God had a name, what would it be? If God had a face, What would it look like? And then the ringing question of the song filled with all that 1990's melancholy. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. (laughs) We don't profess to know the answers to all these questions, but we do profess this. God once had a face in this world. And it was a Middle Eastern rabbi. Calloused hands. Dark eyes. Probably a stocky build. He had a name. A name as common as Joe or Kenny or Amanda is to us today. And we hold that this Jesus entered our world driven by the deepest divine affection to somehow save us from ourselves. If this is true, it is the most shocking news the world has ever received. And it's the best news the world has ever received. For it means that God has come to us in a way that we would never invent or make possible. We would save the world through pyrotechnics. We would save the world with maybe nuclear weapons. We would save the world with every single hero from Marvel Comics that we could get in a room. God saves the world in a bloody mess on a cross. Through love and through scandal. I don't know everything that the cross means, but with William Barclay, I do know this. And I'll read his words to you. Because of Jesus Christ, and because of what He is, and did, and does, my whole relationship with God is changed. I know that God is now my Father and friend. I can enter into His presence with confidence and with boldness. He is no longer my enemy. He is no longer even my judge. I am more at home with Him than any human being in the world. And this is all because of Jesus Christ. And it could not possibly have happened without Him. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer, will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.